you've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Black Man with a Gun Show. And I'm your host, Ken Blanchard. Did that mess you up? A little different, huh? Let me know what you think. This week on episode number 381, just letting you know that I'm down, but I'm not out. Went a little over to the dark side of force for a hot second, but I'm back. Talking about Chicago and the violence. Got a little history for you with the NAACP. And after John Wayne leads us in the Pledge of Allegiance, we're going to get on with episode number 381 of a podcast that's been going since 2007 for the cool people in the gun rights community. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Depending on what snippet of the news you caught or what talking head you're listening to, things look pretty bad on the gun front. The truth is, violence is down nationwide from what it was last year. You may have heard about the numbers of people shot over the 4th of July weekend in Chicago, and that was just plain old nuts. Chicago is a great American city. I love Chicago for the people, the food, and the culture. It's the home of the style of blues music that I enjoy. It's a place where state legislature doesn't allow its citizens the right to keep and bear arms. They try their best to undo any freedom. And folks are used to it, so they vote it back in over and over again. Chicago doesn't have a gun problem. It doesn't. It has a gang problem. Actually, murders in Chicago as of today are 185 people. Yeah. Career politicians have successfully kept freedom of choice away from the law-abiding. Certain clergy have become famous advocating against the rights of honest people related to guns. Many people in Chicago don't understand the history of gun control like you do. Many people in the city do not understand that most of what has been said is not true about gun ownership and firearms. Criminals and career politicians prefer those that are unarmed. Banning guns doesn't and hasn't protected the children. Education does. Prohibiting firearms for the law-abiding doesn't put law-abiding people or law enforcement at risk. We are still responsible for our own safety. Criminals prefer unarmed victims. Gun ownership doesn't equal murder. You can own a firearm and be a devout Christian or Jew, atheist or agnostic. Gun control is based on racist roots. Over the past five years, Chicago has been the center of a lot of debates and even a great Supreme Court decision where a friend of ours, an African-American senior citizen named Otis McDonald, Otis McDonald, was the plaintiff for a federal case that went to the Supreme Court. The spree of shootings in Chicago during the long holiday weekend reached 82 incidents and included 14 deaths, according to what the police reported. It hasn't been said that of those 14 fatalities, two were shot dead by police. Here in Washington, D.C., there's been 59 murders, and most because of domestic issues, not gangs. 
In Detroit, there have been 90 homicides. In Baltimore, it's 103. In Philadelphia, 119. In New Orleans, 70. In New York City, 120. In Memphis, 52. And all these numbers are down from what they were last year. Homicide rates do show that something's broken, even if they've gone down a little bit. Our national murder rate is not a mystery that can only be attributed to a gun. It's largely <clears throat> the work of uh, adult males between the ages of 18 and 39 with a criminal past that are killing other males of the same age and a criminal past. And every once in a while, they shoot an innocent person who doesn't have the opportunity or advantage of getting the heck out of Dodge. The breakdown in Chicago's murders in 2013 showed that 83% of those murdered in Chicago last year had criminal records. In Philly, it's 75%. In Milwaukee, 77%. In New Orleans, it's 64%. In Baltimore, it's 91%. Most were felons who had served time. And many, as many as 80% of the homicides were gang-related. So gun control efforts in Chicago or any other city are just doomed because gangs are like organized crime, and they stretch from way up there to down to Mexico. The problem is drugs, and that drives gang traffic as everybody is trying to make a buck. Those kids that are involved in it are drawn to the culture. They stay in it for the quick and easy cash and the loss of hope in the system that folks here in D.C. talk about like it works. And then they defend themselves and their turf when they're insulted by rival gangs. These people aren't shooting businessmen in the loop or pretty boys from Lakeview. They're shooting other gang members and they miss sometimes and hit children and innocent people, good people, who have to live in the drug corridors of the city on the south and west sides. There's a war going on, and the gangs of these young men who fight to control the streets. It's criminals killing criminals, and it's just horrible. The majority of homicide victims have extensive backgrounds, criminal backgrounds. That's just fact. That's my take on what's happening, and it's all backed up by stats and the numbers. Don't lie. Gun violence is a misnomer. It's just violence. Being an armed citizen means having a gun with you all the time. Carrying a firearm every day requires a holster that is both concealable and comfortable. Whether you choose our Super Tuck Deluxe or Mini Tuck, you'll have the confidence that comes from being discreetly and comfortably armed, prepared to face unforeseen dangers. Crossbreed holsters are handmade in the USA, come with a lifetime warranty and a two-week try-it-free guarantee. Order your holster today at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Not too long ago, I got a call from somebody from the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. You know, they're headquartered here in Baltimore, Maryland, and this attorney was recently just assigned there, and he was trying to make a difference, and he wanted to get a handle on the gun rights movement. He was doing his history, and he had studied on gun rights and the racist roots of the whole thing, and he says, how come nobody's 
talked about this. Now, how come the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People is not on top of this thing, not really doing, and I just picked my bottom lip up off the ground, and I said, brother, let's talk. Well, I got him fired up and never heard from him again. I assumed that he probably got beat up the head and shoulders with a big stick and kicked out of there. But um, keep hope alive. You know, the whole NAACP, it's been around since 1909 and it's gone through a few changes. Just like our government, actually, and political parties and people, stuff that we see today in 2014 isn't the way it was always. We are almost in a bizarro situation with just about everything. The race riot of 1908 in Springfield, Illinois, highlighted the urgent need for an effective civil rights organization in the U.S. And it was the reason, a catalyst, if you say, for the NAACP. Um, It was started by a multiracial group of people. Mary White Ovington, she's a journalist. Uh, William English Walling and Henry Moskowitz, they all met in New York City in January of 1909. And they were trying to make this thing coincide with the uh, birth of President Abraham Lincoln, but it didn't happen till three months later. It was actually founded February 12, 1909 uh, by W.E.B. Du Bois, who I'll talk about in a minute, Ida B. Wells, Archibald Grimke, Henry Moskowitz, Mary White Ovington, Oswald Garrison Villard, William English Walling, and he was the last son of a former slaveholding family, uh, Florence Kelly, a social reformer and friend of Dubois, and Charles Edward Russell, who was known back then as a muckraker, who would probably be a blogger today. And he was also a close friend of Walling. And he acted um, as a chairman of the National Negro Committee back in 1909, which was the front runner to the NAACP. Back in May 1909, the Niagara Movement uh, took place and folks emerged from that and called it the National Negro Committee. And the biggest thing back then was the anti-lynching deal and women's rights. Mm-hmm. Lynching was off the chain. I mean, it was, remember that song by uh, Billy Holiday, Strange Fruit? There's a reason for that song. NAACP was actually incorporated in 1911. And uh, the charter says to promote equality of rights and to ed- eradicate caste or race prejudice among the citizens of the United States, to advance the interest of colored citizens, to secure for them impartial suffrage and to increase their opportunities for securing justice in the courts, education for the children, employment according to their ability, and complete equality before law. That's all good stuff. Still valid today, which means the NAACP is still valid today. They keep the name, because I, I asked, I want to know actually why they say colored people, for tradition. That's why. One of the people who started the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People who was not like the folks that you have today in it was a guy by the name of William Edward Burkhart Dubois, better known as W.E.B. Du Bois. 
Um, he was born February 23rd, 1868 in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and he was smart brother. He was the first to, first African-American to earn a PhD from Harvard. Yeah, so he was from Harvard. He was. Well, this guy was trying to do a lot back in the day. And in 1903, uh, Dubois published his seminal work called The Souls of Black Folk. It was a collection of 14 essays. And he was really big on opposing the idea of biological white supremacy, uh, vocally supported women's rights, and he served and started the uh, monthly magazine called The Crisis. You ever hear about the race riots in Atlanta, 1906? Well, the Atlanta race riots, 1906, was a mass civil disturbance in Atlanta, Georgia, which began the evening of September 22nd and lasted until the 24th. An estimated 25 to 40 uh, African-Americans were killed, along with two confirmed European-Americans. And the main cause for this rising tension between whites and blacks as a result of competition for jobs, black desire for civil rights, uh, reconstruction, and the gubernatorial election of 1906. That's the scholarly thing. But in doing some research, I saw that it also had to do with some black guy whistled at a white woman. That is still and always has been an issue in America. Hey, where are the white women at? <laughs> yeah, I did that. All right, taking the, from the Negroes and the gun and the black tradition of arms from our friend and brother Nicholas Johnson. W.E. Du Bois is quoted as saying, I bought a Winchester double-barreled shotgun and two dozen rounds of shells filled with buckshot. If a white mob had stepped on the campus where I lived, I would without question have sprayed their guts over the grass. Guts sprayed over the grass? Who would have thunk a thunk a thing? Well, the stiff-collared Harvard PhD W.E.B. Du Bois, perhaps still the preeminent intellectual of the race at the time, the black tradition of arms gains resonance. William Edward Burkert Du Bois was born in a relatively benign environment of Berkshire County, Massachusetts, where his people had lived free since the 18th century. An acknowledged prodigy, Du Bois demonstrated his gifts early in competitions with white classmates and easily gently or eased gently into the cauldron of American racism when a little white girl nastily refused his offering in the school's visiting card exchange. Dubois would become a leading voice for the higher aspirations of black folk, famously warring with Booker T. Washington's strategy of uplift through industrial education. His energy and vision were a crucial force in the early development of the National Association of Colored People. Through the association's flagship magazine, The Crisis, Dubois spoke to and for the American Negro like no one else on the scene. A Pulitzer Prize-winning treatment of his life is aptly subtitled Biography of a Race. Dubois' shotgun threat was a response to the carnage of the 1906 Atlanta race riots. The riot was a peace with the times. The immediate catalyst was the claim of assaults by black men on white women. Hey, where are the white women at? <laughs> 
I keep putting that in there because as I have traveled, as I have spoken, as I have been around doing gun rights stuff, every time one of our white sisters gives me a hug, this is what I think about in my head, that they have hung people who look like me for less. So when you see me at a conference, and some beautiful lady comes up to me and gives me a hug because she listens to the podcast or whatever, knowing that no matter what's going on in my life, I'm thinking they have hung a brother for this somewhere. Anyway, the local press fanned the flames with special editions carrying at least two special reports of such attacks, and these claims caught hold of the context of widespread white angst about the real and imagined debaucheries of Atlanta's Decatur Street dives and the rising tide of black criminality that their patrons represented. This was a period in America where Negroes were regularly lynched. Negroes, colored people, black folks. The Fulton County Sheriff's public assessment reflected the times. He said, Gentlemen, we will suppress these great indignities upon our fair wives and daughters if we have to kill every Negro in a thousand miles of this place. Hey, where are the white women at? By arming himself in Atlanta, uh, Dubois was something of an aberration, but only in the sense that he was late to the game. Many in his circle owned and carried guns, but he never had. As a freshman at Fisk University in 1886, Dubois recorded that his classmates commonly carried guns whenever they ventured into Nashville. He was lucky when the Atlanta riot broke out that he was able to find a shotgun for sale and had the money to buy it. While no one of note appreciated it at the time, the Atlanta riot was a formative experience for a young man who would become Dubois' comrade in arms, young Walter White, later the famous spokesman for the NAACP. With a mob advancing, 13-year-old Walter waited with his father, gun in hand, at the front windows of their home on Houston Street. Shooting from a nearby building repelled a mob before he was forced to fire, but the episode seared in White's memory and cemented his Negro identity. Walter White's time would come, but Dubois was already in the thick of the dilemma that burdened blacks trying to navigate the political disenfranchisement and the private violence of the early 20th century America. With the lessons of Confederate redemption still vivid, the following <laughs> with the lessons of Confederate redemption still vivid, the folly of political violence was evident, but the draw of self-defense against personal threats remained powerful. The violence that sent Dubois running for a gun held lessons about the danger of armed self-defense spiraling into political violence. The reaction to the riot from outside Atlanta made the boundary against political violence seem tenuous. Many folk embraced the thinking that fueled Dubois' armed stand. Others, like Booker T. Washington, ever cautious in his public statements, vaguely argued, quote, the best people, end quote, white and black, to come together, prevent these episodes of disorder. Among the rising national organizations, the Afro-American Council, the Niagara Movement, the Constitution League, the reaction was more openly militant. At a meeting of the Afro-American Council in New York, Dr. William Hunter raised the roof with a speech, urging blacks to prepare for national scale for self-defense, not with brick bats and fire sticks, but with hot lead. To the issue of Negroes chaffing under the 
malevolent authority of officials like the Fulton County Sheriff. He advised, die outside of jail or do not go by yourself. Reverend George Lee of the Vermont Avenue Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., cast off the restraints of his guild, declaring that the attacks in Atlanta dissolved any obligation of turning the other cheek. I preached peace after the Atlanta riots, said Lee, but don't misunderstand me. It was prejudice, not my religion. He continued when he said, If I had the power to stop that kind of thing, even by force, I'd use it. The trouble is all one-sided now, but trouble never stays one-sided for long. There's going to be trouble on the other side soon. And the New York Times caricatured this militant chorus, but still captured the general sentiment and the sentiment at the Afro-American Council with the headline, Talk of War on Whites at Negro Conference. You know, that stuff still happens. Uh, we still have uh, militancy. We still have prejudice on both sides, black and white. You can read it any day on Facebook. In his classic work, The Souls of Black Folk, Dubois argued that organized violence was counterproductive, noting that the death of Denmark Vesey and Nat Turner proved long since to the Negro the present hopelessness of physical defense. At the same time, in the chapter entitled Of the Coming of John, A Tale of Violence and Private Honor, Dubois championed self-defense as a core private interest. Responding to real-world threats, Dubois was adamant about the legitimacy and perhaps the duty of self-defense, even where there was danger of spillover into political violence. And you can consider his 1916 editorial in The Crisis, um, talking about Negroes in Florida who submitted without resistance to the depredations of a lynch mob. In these early 1900s of our history, uh, black people were being summarily lynched at will. I mean, there were just so many episodes from like 1900s till 1950 where you couldn't be caught alone. You could get just jumped by a mob and strung up for whatever the reason. And many academics and people, even preachers back then, would tell you it's better to be caught with one than without one, talking about a gun. The NAACP wasn't always like it is now. Times have changed, but people haven't. I'll try to give you a little bit more from time to time. Um, this one actually came from Nicholas Johnson, a professor of law at Fordham University, or Fordham Law School. And uh, he's a friend of us all. In his book, Negroes and the Gun, he chronicles the underappreciated black tradition of bearing arms for self-defense. You know we all go through stuff. I want to give a quick shout out to Crazy Sam, to Kale, to Jack, to Jeff, and to Frank. I'm down, but I'm not out. It's been a rough year, and some of you guys don't know it, but I've been going through. Four people that I know died in the last few months, and one of them, I didn't, well, shoot, two of them, I didn't know about it until I saw it on Facebook. I was wishing this guy a happy birthday. Hadn't talked to him in a few months. Wished him a birthday thing. You know, on Facebook, they'll tell you when their birthday is. So I scrolled to his page and saw it say, Happy birthday, Uncle. Rest in peace. I know the guy was sick. 
I mean, he was going through cancer. We had talked on Skype a few months ago. Scrolled up a page a little bit further and saw where he was moralized. Not, to, not that long after we spoke, actually. That's some shenigity right there, man. Then I had a cousin who I wasn't really close with, but I was. we had just had a nice conversation and said, you got to do better. We didn't grow up together. He's from Brooklyn. And he says, yeah, man, I see all the stuff you do online. Let's hook up. I thought, all right, sometime this summer. Catch the train up, man. I'll meet you up in New York. Cool, I'll, I'll show you around. And the next thing I know, I see folks saying that he was being cremated. My own relatives, they were like, hey, you going to Ethan's funeral? And I thought, my cousin Ethan, our cousin. They're like, yeah. He died like last week. Dog. Well, last few months, you might have known because I probably told you before, but I resigned from a toxic church. I was fired or my contract ended any way you want to say it from a company that I was defense contractor for. Then the company itself went out of business. My health care for that company was all screwed up. We we're still paying for that. Been out of work now for 16 months. Yeah. That's, that'll put some stress on anybody. I had a back injury that resulted in like a sciatica. Had car trouble. My AC broke in a way they couldn't fix it without taking the dash. And that would have been like $1,500 to do that. So I don't have any AC right now, and it's July. But of course, not just the heat. The uh, engine block has a crack in it, so that can't be repaired. It has to be replaced. So I don't even know how much that's going to cost. Two of my old fishing buddies are suffering with cancer. Um, one, I don't think he'll be fishing with us again. He's still alive, but he's doing not, not so high. He has like a blood the leukemia thing, got a blood disorder. And the other guy, yeah, they both got some blood issues, actually. And I can't even afford to go fishing, actually. Well, the good news is the sciatica is gone. Um, I've actually written for Guns America, the Washington Times. Um, got the chance to sp speak on stage with Donald Trump, the Don, yeah, the real Don. Spoke with the, into, in front of the largest audience that I've ever spoken in front of, minus a podcast uh, up in New York. This is all this year I'm talking. Published my new book, Black Man with a Gun. Reloaded. Book sales are slow. Probably get one or two sales a month. But not blaming you. That's just how it is, period, you know. And I hear you. I hear you as a friend, and I appreciate that. That's one of the good things about this podcast. And all of that is why I was thinking about stopping the podcast. But um, I'm not. I got a chance to be a part of a writer's group called Make Big Noise, thanks to Laura Burgess Marketing. I've had some good times these last 16 months. Just wasn't financial success, but everything else is, is moving right along. 
I've had a chance to experiment and try new things, and it ain't totally bad. Created a new podcast called Motorcycle Radio, which I just adore. Found out that I got a passion for that thing. I mean, so go check out MotorcycleRadio.us. Check it out on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and on the website, MotorcycleRadio.us. I'm down, but I'm not out. I've been angry sometimes. Um, my wife was, we were all shopping, and I saw a guy eyeing her purse. And I thought, dude, you do not want to fight me right now. I will beat you down until the cops pull me off of you. You will get some frustration like you never seen. You would have thought you were responsible for my slavery after I get done. But it didn't happen. You ever been like that? I realized that being down is a choice. Yeah. Being a grumpy old carmudgeon, a SOB, it's a choice. Stuff happens to you and you can choose how you're going to react to it. So I'm choosing not to be an ass. I think it burns more calories trying to be up and be happy and cheery. But the alternative, you know what I'm saying? Vince Lombardi says, it's not whether you get knocked down. It's whether you get back up. I just want to say thank you. Black Man of the Gun Show is not going anywhere as long as I got um, my patrons that are supporting the podcast. That's our newest thing on our donor page, supporters. You guys are the reason this thing's still alive and crossbreed holsters, of course. Thanks for your encouragement. You don't know how much I need it sometime. If you want to become a patron, check out our patron support page at patreon.com forward slash black man with a gun. So if you're going through something, your brother right here understands. And I've learned that it's just life. That's what people say You're riding high in April Shot down in May But I know I'm gonna change their tune When I'm right back on top In June That's life And as funny as it seems some people get their kicks Stepping on your dreams But I can't let it get me down Cause this big old world Keeps spinning round I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet A pawn and a king I've been up and down and over and out But I know one thing Each time I find myself flat on my face 
I picked myself up and got back in the race That's life I can't deny it I thought of quitting, baby But my heart just wouldn't buy it Cause if I didn't think it was worth another try I'd have rolled myself up in a big old ball and died I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king I've been up and down and over and out and I know one thing Each time I find myself flat on my face I pick myself up and got to back in the race That's life That's what people say You're riding high in April Shot down in May But I know I'm gonna change it too When I'm right back on top When I'm rolling with the hot sauce When I'm cooking with grease And uh, I'm back on top In June I want to thank you for listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Black Man with the Gun Show. If you like what you heard, not necessarily the song, but the podcast itself, please give me a five-star review. The show notes can be found at episode number 381 at blackmanwiththegun.com. Until next week, shalom, baby. <laughs>